0: Isaac Newton's third law of motion says that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. It's something that we're familiar with. We see examples of this law all throughout nature. For example, when fish want to swim forward, they push the water backward. When a bird wants to fly up, they push the air down. Their movement is based on Newton's third law of motion. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Reaction. I believe in Romans, Paul is teaching us a similar theological truth. I'm going to call it the reciprocal law of grace. And it works like this: a life that is impacted by grace responds in an equal magnitude of love. Let me say that again. A life that is impacted by grace responds in an equal magnitude magnitude of love. So, the greater the impact of grace, the larger the response of love. Well, in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul has been highlighting the first half of this equation. He's been describing the riches of God's grace that have been lavished on us in Jesus. Because of his death on the cross, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. And that forgiveness releases us from God's judgment. So as we see in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 5, 9 says, Having been justified by His blood, we are saved from the wrath of God's judgment. Not only are we saved from God's judgment, but we are also released from the power of sin's control. Romans chapter 6 verse 14 says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Chapter 8 verse 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Paul is telling us God's Spirit empowers us to live out of the righteousness credited to, to us in Christ. The impact of God's grace has the power to radically transform our life. And the way we know that's true is through the reciprocal law of grace. Where a life that is impacted by grace responds in an equal magnitude of love. So beginning in chapter 12, Paul speaks to the second half of this equation by describing this supernatural love. Love that is only possible if our life is a living sacrifice. Dying to self through a daily surrender. So that we can say like Paul does when he writes to the Galatians and says, I've been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It is Christ's love for me that compels my love for others, and it begins with a brotherly love. Paul tells us to give preference to the relationships within our own church family. We are called to be devoted to one another, not lagging behind in diligence, serving God and serving each other. And it's this foundation of family love that then allows us to extend a supernatural love to those who are outside of the household of faith, including our enemies. Paul says we're to feed them when they're hungry. We're to give them something to drink when they're thirsty. We bless and not curse. We, we bless hoping that God uses this supernatural love in some way to bring redemption in their life. We don't curse wanting the, the worst to come upon someone who hurts us. As Mark mentioned last week, and that includes our government officials. However vile they may be. Because our well-being is not based on the decisions of political leaders. See, they are appointed by God for a divinely ordained purpose. But we do not put our hope in the decisions that our leaders make. We put our hope in the assurance that the outcome of our lives is ultimately determined by God. For from Him, our source, and through Him, our guide. And to Him, our goal are all things. To Him be the praise and the glory forever. What we do is always, always, always a response to everything that He has done. We are transformed by His grace And the more our lives are impacted by His grace, the more we should see a supernatural love being displayed in response. So before we look at our passage this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we uh, confess to you this morning that what we are talking about is really not anything that innately exists within us, (laughs) because... By nature, we are selfish and sinful and out for ourselves. Only by the work of your Spirit within us can we consider the needs of someone else as more important than our own. That is a work of grace. And Lord, even further, how can we possibly love those who persecute us without the love of Christ working within us? even though he was reviled he did not revile in return we're, we're in supernatural territory we're in places that we cannot go in our own strength and we're asking would you take us there this morning would you help us see By the power of your spirit. The people. That you have called us to be. And we pray this in your name. Amen. If you would turn to Romans chapter 13. And we will pick up where we left off last. Beginning in verse 8. So if you want to follow along with me. love for you to do that. Beginning in verse 8. Where Paul writes. And he says this. He says. Owe nothing to anyone. Except to love one another. For. He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. It's really simple as he says it there in the beginning. Owe nothing to anyone but love. As we learned last week, Paul said, pay taxes to whom taxes are due. And pay custom to whom custom is due. In other words, always keep short accounts, making sure the payments that you owe are paid in full except when it comes to love. And that is a payment that can never, ever be fully repaid. Paul was essentially telling us that we are eternally indebted to love. And here's why. We are called to pour out into the lives of others out of the love God has poured into us. And since God's love never finishes in us, we should never terminate our love for others. As long as He is pouring into us, we should be compelled to pour into the lives of others. You see, we don't reach a quota. We don't fulfill our obligation. God's love has no limits. And we know that to be true. And since that's true, neither should ours. In fact, Paul is saying that To love your neighbor is actually the fulfillment of the law. And we need to understand that God's law is God's instruction for how God's people are called to live. It explains our divinely ordained purpose in life. And Paul is saying, listen, that purpose is completely fulfilled in love. If you are faithful to that, then you're faithful to it all. Jesus actually said something similar in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 33. Listen as I read what he says. It says, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. This is what he asked Jesus. He says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Here's Jesus' answer. He said to them, You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. You'll notice that the Pharisees, the religious leaders wanted to know what the single most important commandment is. And the reason is, is because the religious leaders were people of efficiency, right? They knew that they could not keep the entire law. So if they could just narrow it down to a few of the most important ones, that would be good. And so that's the purpose of their question. But Jesus turns their question back on themselves and says, actually, the whole law is important. And if you want to be faithful to the whole law, you can fulfill it in two commandments. Love the Lord God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Which, a little sidebar here, that's why our vision statement says what it does. It says we are a gospel-centered family committed to worshiping God, or we could translate that and say, loving God with all your heart, loving others, and making disciples. The two great commandments and the great commission. That's who we are called to be as a church body. But we need to understand that this is not new information, that what Jesus is proclaiming was something that was said all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments, the the first half of those Ten Commandments focus on what it means to love God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other idols. You shall Not use the Lord's name in vain. It's focusing on our love for God. Then you look at the second half and it starts to turn on how we love each other. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't covet. And isn't it interesting that that's exactly where Paul takes us? In our passage, look again at verse 9. He goes to those lists of laws related to how we are to love one another. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, it can be summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, Paul understands that the second half of those commandments are only fulfilled when the first half have been followed. Do you understand that? The second half can only be fulfilled when the first half has been followed. Take adultery for example. Not committing adultery is based on the sanctity of marriage ordained by God between one woman and one man for a lifetime. It's a worshipful decision to not go outside the boundaries Of God's design. Listen, you have to walk away from God before you enter into adultery every single time. You cannot follow the second half until the first half has been fulfilled. Choosing to murder is based on the sanctity of life, whether that's life of the unborn or life of the elderly. Loving God enough to let him make that choice as the creator and sustainer of all that exists. We don't steal from other people when we trust that the Lord's going to provide. Our freedom from coveting is based on our contentment in God's provision. Even loving our neighbor as we love ourselves is ultimately rooted In our love for God. See, this is not a call to a higher self-esteem. Like if you just loved yourself more, you can love other people. That's not what he's saying here. It's a decision to value other people in the same way that God values you. It's the understanding that apart from Christ, we are hopelessly broken and enslaved to sin and powerless. Absolutely powerless to break free. And yet, even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we cried out for His mercy and grace, He covered us with His forgiveness and love. Only by understanding our value in the eyes of God can we truly value other people. It's actually remembering, and don't miss this, that that you and your neighbor are exactly the same. You're exactly the same because you're equally broken apart from Christ. You are equally dependent upon His mercy and grace. It's really a decision to do unto others as God has done unto you. That's the reciprocal law of grace at work. Let's look at how he continues in verse eleven. It says, "Do this, knowing the time that is already the hour." Excuse me. Do this, uh, knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than we believe. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day. Not in carousing and drunkenness. Not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Not in strife and jealousy. See, I think Paul is really pressing the point that he's trying to make with a sense of urgency, isn't he? He's talking about it's time. It's time. And when he uses that word time, he's using the word kairos. Now where the word chronos is a quantity of time, like what you see on your watch, kairos describes a quality of time, like it's game time. Okay? It's describing an episode, a period of important time. In some of the authors with scripture, they might call this the last days, or the end of the age. That's what Paul is referring to when he's talking about this important episode of time. This time that we are in right now. In God's plan of redemption, it is the final hour before Christ's promised return. And Paul wants us to understand that each day we live is one day closer to His return. In fact, Paul wants us to live, every single one of us, With a true and honest sense that there's a really good chance that Christ is going to return in our lifetime. You get that? He meant it for his original audience and he certainly means it for us. Because if there's ever been a time where it seems like it's close, that time is now. And he says live with that expectation that Christ is going to return in your lifetime. But he says, it's not going to happen. You won't live with that expectation if your eyes are closed. So he says, wake up. Open your eyes. Look around you. See what's happening. Don't let the rhythms of this world lull you to sleep. Because when we sleep, what do we do? We dream, right? I had some crazy dreams last night. And I woke up and tried to figure out, okay, what world am I in? Am I in my dream world or am I in the real world? And which one is the real world? I mean, that's really what it felt like. But that's what happens with dreams. They feel very real, but they're completely detached from reality. And in the same way, when we get caught up in the ways of the world, we come, become completely detached from the reality of God's kingdom. And we completely lose sight Of the imminent return of Christ. Paul is reminding us. That we are here for a limited time. To fulfill a temporary assignment. And because of that there is a sense of urgency. To take care of the opportunity that you have been given. Because the window is literally closing. Paul describes it in a similar way. Or excuse me Peter in 1 Peter verse Chapter 4, verse 7, listen, he says this. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and of sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, so here he is highlighting, here's what's most important. Listen to what he says. Keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Isn't it interesting that Peter... Just like Paul is emphasizing the priority of love, especially in the last days. Paul promotes this urgency of our salvation, Of more specifically, when we will be raised up with Christ when He returns. He says, it's closer than you think it is. God's plan is in motion. It's not on pause. Every day, we are one day closer to His return. It is progressing to its intended end. Paul says, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light, he says. Now, this contrast, don't miss this, the contrast between darkness and light is really important to understand. Because really what Paul is describing here is a a contrast in this current age, this time, this episode of time in which we live, the last days, compared to the age to come, the age of light. We see something very similar when he writes to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 12. Listen, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over, here it is, this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, stand firm. Isn't it interesting that in both cases, Paul is emphasizing the reality of spiritual warfare in this present darkness? It's why he tells us to put on the armor of light. And here in chapter 6 of Ephesians, the armor of God. And we need to understand it's the same thing. Okay? The armor of light and the armor of God is the very same thing. The belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness. The gospel of peace. The shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now I want you to look at that list real quickly. I want you to tell me if you possess any of those things on your own. Not a one. That's why it's called the armor of God and not the armor of Todd. (laughs) right? Because I don't have any of those things. Unless those things are given to me by a gracious heavenly Father. This means that we are protected By God's faithful provision, we just need to apply what God faithfully supplies. Did you hear that? We just need to apply what God faithfully supplies. Behaving properly, Paul says, as in the day. Because here's the reality. You probably know this, but there will be a day when there is no more night. Did you know that? Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, describing this next age, the age of light, the age of eternal life, when we live eternally in the kingdom of God, in the presence of God, is described this way. And there will no longer be any night. And they will have no need of a light of a lamp or the light of the sun. Think about that. I mean, the lights went out and we couldn't see. There will be a day when the lights could go out all over the world, including blocking the sun, and it's okay. Why? Because it tells us the Lord God will illumine them. The presence of the glory of God will bring light eternal into our lives. I don't know about you, but that's an awesome, unfathomable thought, isn't it? So what Paul is saying here is that our conduct should reflect the kingdom to which we belong. Do you get that? Our conduct should reflect the kingdom to which we belong. And there's only two. The kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. See, like a lamp in the night, our light, the light of our lives, should illumine the world with the light of Christ. So instead, Paul says, of being under the influence of some substance, whether that be drugs or, or alcohol, he says, be led by the Holy Spirit. See, we don't want anything to distract us. We don't want anything that would cause us to drop our guard. He goes on and says, instead of fulfilling selfish pleasures of immorality, our lives should be a living sacrifice. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 says it this way, Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, love, faith, and peace, along with those who call upon the name of the Lord with a pure heart. Our conduct is a reflection Of the kingdom to which we belong. And we have been rescued. Get this? We have been rescued from all those things listed in verse 10. That is not who we are. It might be who we've been. But it is not who we are in Christ. Paul tells us in his letter to the Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. You have been rescued. Here it is. From the domain of darkness. What happens? You're transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That kingdom of His beloved Son is the kingdom of light. So this is a purposeful decision in the life of the believer to set your mind on things above we put our focus uh, set our hearts and our minds on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith which is why Paul said back in Galatians chapter, t- chapter 20 or 2 verse 20 he says the, the life i live in the flesh i live by what is it faith faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me Pur- purposefully putting on the new self Paul describes that to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to what this is. These are incredible verses, so listen closely. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. You don't own them, they own you. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked past tense and you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the One who created Him. Again, it is a purposeful decision in the life of the believer to set your mind on things above. Purposefully putting on that new self. And that new self is that new identity of who you are in Christ where old things have gone and behold, new things have come. Being clothed with Christ. Remember, you're the one in whom Christ dwells and delights. You as a child of God belong to the kingdom of God. The unshakable kingdom of God. And that kingdom is not in trouble. And when you belong to the kingdom, then neither are you. That's your true identity. You are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Being clothed in Christ is a willful decision to live out of your new identity. Eternally secure, completely forgiven, and covered in grace. Paul says, making no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. And you know what that tells me? It tells me that even in my new identity, I still can't rise above the reality of temptation In this present darkness. And we know that's true because it was true for Jesus, right? It says that He was tempted in all things. Yet without sin. Here Paul is telling us that in order for us to avoid sin, we must make no provision for the flesh. And here's what's interesting. That word for provision literally means forethought and planning. Okay, Think about that. Make no provision, no forethought, no planning for the flesh. It's the idea of playing out the possibilities before you choose to participate. Isn't that how it usually works? Playing out the possibilities before you choose to participate. We need to understand that the flesh is impulsive. If you put it in the right environment, it will naturally respond. And so Paul is saying, don't go there. Not even in your mind. Don't plan or prepare for something before you choose to participate. Make no provision for the flesh. Set your mind on things above. Not on things of the earth. And so let me be real practical here. If you make a provision or a decision flip through channels where you're sitting alone in a hotel room or you're just scrolling through YouTube videos when you're alone in your bedroom you will eventually run into something disastrous it's a promise if you choose to scroll through your social media whether that be Facebook or Twitter or TikTok or whatever else they come up with you will eventually encounter something corrupt And you need to understand when you make the decision to spend your idle time in that way, you are making provision for the flesh. You are creating an environment in which it will naturally respond. Paul wants us to see that our life will be defined by whatever fills our mind. Our life will be defined. By whatever fills our mind. If you fill your mind with the truth of God's grace and the power of God's word, then your life will be defined by love. By love. See, it will not work for you just to decide one day, you know, I think Todd's right. I just need to be more loving. I just just need to try a little harder just to be more loving. Let me just tell you right now, don't do that because you'll fail every single time. Why do I know that? Because I have failed every single time. I've told myself that. It might work for a while, but it will not last very long because we have a very limited supply of love before even that love turns selfish. (laughs) The only way we can live a self-sacrificing love is to set our minds on God. Once again, it's the reciprocal law of grace. The more we appreciate God's grace towards us, the greater the love that we share toward others. I might actually say it this way, just to give it a different twist. If you want to be more loving, then learn to be more worshipful. If you want to be more loving... Then learn to be more worshipful. Ephesians 4.30 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Notice, we forgive others by focusing on what? How much God has forgiven us, right? 1 John 4.9 says, We love only because He first loved us. Once again, focusing on God's love for me is what compels me to turn and show love for one another. Focusing on the love that I didn't deserve allows me to give love to someone else who doesn't deserve it either. Why would I withhold from them something I freely received from Him? You see? This passage is calling us to supernatural love. Left to ourselves, we will spend our time Trying to determine who truly deserves our love. Left to ourselves. We will withhold our love. Innately. We will withhold our love from those who have hurt us. We will withhold it from enemies who persecute us. But when we look to Jesus. We cannot miss. The unmerited love that he extends towards us. And if we will rely on this spirit. That spirit will empower us to go and do the same. Yes, in and of ourselves, it's completely impossible. I'll grant you that. But in Christ, it's what he empowers us to do. This passage is calling us to a supernatural love, but it will not happen through willpower. It will only happen through worship. The more we magnify God's grace towards us, the greater our love towards others. You get that? It's the reciprocal law of grace. That's how it works. And so let's just pray that as a people of God that we might demonstrate that love of God to a very dark world around us and that we would be that light that comes on in the world in which they live. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word, the power of your gospel, the hope of salvation through Christ Jesus our Lord. And Father, I do pray that you will teach us, that you will guide us, that you will empower us to a love that we do not possess on our own. We, we have to confess, we have to acknowledge, this is a supernatural love. There is nothing within us that wants to love those who've hurt us. There's nothing within us that wants to love those who have persecuted us. And yet, Lord, that's the love that we see being poured out from you over and over again. So would you, by the power of your Spirit, by your grace and mercy towards us, help us see what that looks like so we can go and do the same. Just like you have called us to. Owe nothing to anyone but love. Amen. Let's stand and sing together, please. You guys have been amazing this morning. Thank you. And let me remind you, when the world goes dark, the church comes alive. Don't ever forget that. I I, I hear a lot that is written and said today about the church and how it's failing. I disagree. I really do. Especially when I look out at you. I believe that given the difficulties that people face in this world, the church will come alive. And sometimes I think we do get lulled to sleep when life is comfortable. But make life hard, the church will will come alive. This church will come alive. My only prayer is that we don't wait till it gets hard, (laughs) that we come alive right now. And one of the ways that we do that is by living out this supernatural love with worship-filled hearts. Because the more you can understand and comprehend God's love for you, the more you will extend it to those around you. So let's begin that work today. Amen? Let me pray for us Lord thank you for our time together it's been a blessing I thank you for shaking things up a little bit for us this morning for giving us a taste of something that we don't expect to see what we might do and boy was it beautiful to see what this church has done and I pray that it is a marker that it is a reminder that we look back on and remember that day and may we remember that when the world goes dark the church comes alive May our light shine before men so that they will see our good works and glorify you, our Father, who is in heaven. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.